It's episode 70 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Ryan Topp, and joining me today, like always, is J.P. Breen. And this week, we have Paul Noonan sitting in with us for Steve. How you doing, Paul? Doing great. Thanks for having me. It's always, always a pleasure. So, how's it been? Uh, it's been fine. Um, it's been nice to have some baseball news since um, the Packers season is such a unmitigated disaster and at least there's been winter meetings and a few rumors here and there oh yeah writing through all that would just be a nightmare it's very painful because the packers make basically the same mistakes every single week and once you diagnose them the first time there's not really much more to say about it and except why don't you figure this out what is wrong with you (laughs) um i mean at least they fired mccarthy so that that was a free week of easy writing yeah and now you get the aaron Rodgers post hawk stuff where it's like oh did he really tank and all that stuff that people like to talk about i hope he tanked because the other explanation is much worse frankly (laughs) oh boy all right um jp how's it going just living the dream man we're getting close to the holidays i'm just doing some finals grading it's it's everything that you could imagine and more oh yeah this is this is the uh, big weekend for that isn't it your nose to the grindstone yep get grades in so get to read a lot of uh, a lot of student papers about the exact same thing. That sounds fantastic. All right. Uh, you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcast and Spotify. We want listener questions. So follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate and email questions to Milwaukee's.tailgate at gmail.com or follow on our Facebook page. You can also follow us, any of the three of us, um, on Twitter, and you can find that on the Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. Paul, what's yours again? Um, on Twitter, I'm at Badger Noonan, as in the, the Wisconsin Badgers and my last name. Okay. You want to throw out your Insta or anything? Or? I do not do Instagram, and I'm very seldom on Facebook and don't really care for it. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> um, but um, you can find my writing in the Shepherd Express. Um, I do a, the Packer column every week, and for the Acme Packing Company, the SB Nation Packer site. Um, and for Baseball Prospectus, Milwaukee, which is in a bit of limbo, so we'll see how that goes. Oh, yeah. Yep. There's all kinds of changes happening at Baseball Prospectus yes, right now. Yes, indeed. Yep. Um, and finally, you can support the podcast. Um, visit patreon.com slash tailgate. Our Ball and Glove level patrons receive the monthly Minor League Extra podcast, which JP and I just uh, put out this week. And this is a, a big one for us. This was the Milwaukee Brewers top 10 farmhands episode. So I think we went like well over an hour and a half on that one. And it was it was a good one. JP, yeah, it was one, I was going to say it's one of those that uh, you can hear everything and more than you've ever wanted to hear about Aaron Ashby. Oh, yeah. Aaron <laughs> Ashby and Eduardo Garcia and some of the fast risers that are coming up in the in the back end of the top 10. So. Uh, if you would like, you can check that out for only $5 a month at uh, Patreon. Milwaukee's Tailgate is also sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing. From Dragon Flute to Block Party to Fantasy Factory IPA, K4 specializes in English-style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. Um, you can go and get 20% off merch at the K4 web store with the promo code MKETailgate. Visit the brewery on Kinsman Boulevard or find their beer at your local retailer. As always, check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon4, beer brilliance. 
And finally, Milwaukee's Tailgate is also sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional-sounding podcast, check out the Mix Pre 3 and the Mix Pre 6. For more information, visit sounddevices.com. All right. So we had some news this week, at least. Uh, the winter meetings happened in Las Vegas, and all the writers, you know, got on their bleary-eyed flights on Thursday afternoon, and just kind of as that was all happening, the Brewers made their first, I guess, big transaction of the winter. Uh, they traded for Alex Claudio, a re- left-handed reliever from the Texas Rangers. Um, what was your initial take on that, Paul? Um, I So I just subjectively tend to overvalue draft picks and in baseball that's extra silly that's probably a football problem that i have um where they actually are pretty predictable and pretty valuable um but after thinking about it a while i like it a lot um i think he's a pretty he's very dominant against lefties um looks like he gets hit by righties pretty well but it's one of those things where like once you watch him it's kind of like well if nothing else this will be entertaining he throws some nasty stuff um nasty off-speed stuff and um it seems like a good transaction and a good way to shore up the bullpen, which they rely on so heavily. So I'm pro. JP? Yeah, I think it it takes a lot of boxes in terms of what the Brewers needed in the bullpen. And obviously, we've been talking for a few weeks now about the fact that they probably needed another lefty. We were talking about the fact that maybe it was going to come in the Rule 5 draft. Maybe they were going to pick somebody up off the of waivers. I didn't necessarily expect them to go out and trade for a lefty, but uh, Alex Claudio is somebody that's a little a little more interesting i suppose than than the standard than the standard lefty but when i suppose it gets down to it one of the most interesting things about him is the fact that last year was one of the moments in which he struggled well it, it was actually like the first time he struggled in his professional career he had never had uh, an era above 3 throughout his entire professional career uh, at the big league level until last year and he's somebody that ticks a lot of boxes for what the Brewers like. He's got uh, three years of control left. He's got minor league options remaining. He can handle both lefties and righties, though righties, as Paul noted, actually do hit him a little bit better. But he's shown over the course of his career that he can handle them a little bit. One of the main reasons for that is he has a good, a good changeup. He's found success over a long period of time. He's still pretty young. He's only 26, be 27 next year uh, for for the next season, I suppose. Um, But he does a lot of things. And um, I think Fangraphs has actually kind of hit on something really interesting in terms of what the Brewers are doing. It was something that they wrote about for the the farm system is something that Alex or uh, Eric Longhangen wrote about uh, for the Claudio move in particular. The Brewers really like pitchers that uh, do something really weird. Right. Like whether it's about like a specific pitch, whether it's about something with their delivery, whether it's, you know, something in terms of like just hater having all arms and legs coming at you. And then all of a sudden the, the ball appears, uh, you know, Freddie Peralta is another guy who just is kind of, a, uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to say weird, but like they're just people that don't have a lot of comps. And, and Claudio does a lot of really weird. <laughs> he's got a weird arm slot. He's a guy who throws 86, but misses a ton of bats. He's got a good change up. He can throw his slider. He misses down in the zone pretty much all the time, so he gets a huge ground ball rate. 
And he's just kind of one of those funky lefties that has the ability to do a lot of things that the Brewers would like. So overall, I think it's I think it's pretty positive. Um, I know Ryan's opinion before I even saw it on Twitter, but well, no, I so looking at a few of the things that went along with this. First off, Claudio at his best, which really would encompass the 2017 season where he pitched over 80 innings, was really quite good. Uh, he was absolute death to lefties, 368 OPS against. And was still quite good against righties, 694. If you can find a left-handed reliever that does that, you're in really good shape. That's that's really good. And then in 2018, it regressed quite a bit. He was still fine against lefties, a 602 OPS against. And that's, you know, that's fine Lukey territory, a guy that you, you're fine bringing in to face tough lefties in big situations and games. But a 933 OPS against righties, that's not something you want anywhere near a, a, a good right-handed batter or maybe even a mediocre right-handed batter anybody with power in any sort of leverage situation so it sort of depends what you're getting from claudio if you're getting good claudio you're really looking at a a shutdown reliever who can really really add to your club at his worst he's basically a loogie so there's value in that and as you pointed out he does have a uh, an option left so the Brewers can send him down and use him to shuffle through spots which given how they run their team that is an important aspect to look at uh there's one other thing I wanted to bring up here too and this is I'm sure what you're you're waiting for JP oh, no, no, no. let me let me respond to that to that to that point though because when you look at what he did against right-handers last year you have to note the fact that his batting average on balls and play against righties 407 <clears throat> which everybody seems to know and have talked about it like at this point like he was super unlucky last year and there's a lot of reasons to think that that was not what his true self is and coming to yeah. the brewers where they shift like nobody else and crush babip should be get him back to normal pretty quickly yeah and a lot of the and a lot of the batting average on balls <laughs> you know if it was like accompanied with a skyrocketing home run rate or something like that, where you're like, the dude's just getting absolutely hammered, then there's something to be said. But the fact that he's still getting ground balls against righties, he's still allowing them to not really leave the yard in, in Texas, which isn't necessarily the most, uh, I don't know. What would you say? The, the most pitcher friendly, uh, no, place definitely not world, but, and like, I, I, I don't really love home and away splits, but it is notable last year that he had a 214 ERA away from home. Almost almost everything that was going bad for him last year, he had a 675 ERA at home, and, and Texas is not a good ballpark. Um, so no, he's especially of- in the summer, it becomes, not only is it huge, it has kind of those Colorado disadvantages where it's huge, so a lot of balls get down, but because of the atmosphere, it's relatively easy for the ball to get out as well, so you end up with both problems in parks like that, like in Texas and in whereas Miller Park is a little bit more Miller Park does give up home runs, but because of the way it's contoured, it isn't exactly like a big space for balls to get down. So pitchers don't tend to get babbit to death at Miller Park the same way that you would in Texas and Colorado where you have both issues. So Right. Well and one of the other things to note too in terms of like just the Rangers defense more generally, it was Average at best. I mean, in terms of defensive runs saved, it they were twentieth in in Major League Baseball. Uh, the Brewers obviously were were uh, second by quite a bit. Uh, 
just behind the Diamondbacks, who pretty much crushed it across the board. But there are a lot of things that you really like about what Claudio can bring. That I don't think he's ever going to be... I think now when we say somebody who can handle both lefties and righties, people kind of jump to Josh Hader, and, and we're not saying that he's Josh Hader. But what he could do is like be the really good version of Dan Jennings that existed for like three months before he absolutely imploded late in the year, but have it in more like a sustainable sense. Yeah, and I think you did mention it already, but it is worth pointing out too. He is a remarkably low home run giver upper. <laughs> he really does not give up home runs. His Even in this last year when he was uh, giving up a high ERA, he was still only allowing uh, 0.53 home runs per nine which was actually lower than the 0.54 in 2017 when he was really good. Mm -hmm. So his issues, even when he was bad, weren't just giving up dingers. So yeah. that's something to work with, especially in Miller Park. Yeah, and that's paired largely because he has a 62% career ground ball rate. But looking at the long and hanging piece, he does a really nice job showing kind of um, scatter plots within in, in the zone and showing that even when he's missing, he never misses high. He never misses up in the zone. It's almost always low. And so he's a he's a little bit like what Cedeno was last year for the Brewers, like where he he missed the zone a lot, but it was always low. But like Claudio can actually hit the zone more than Xavier Cedeno mm -hmm. was last year. So we agree this is this is a good move, right? And they they didn't give up too much either. Well, that's that's, that's what other... I was going to get into here was. So they gave up the 39th pick, what is now the 39th pick, which can move up depending on what teams sign free agents that may bump up a little bit and the 39th pick people have if you are on brewers twitter you've seen you know people talking about you know well they haven't there aren't necessarily a lot of great players that have come from there though lance lynn was drafted there barry bonds right i mean i think you had seventh right something like that um but the thing that does stand out even more than that though is what they're giving up in terms of money because that, I think, is is maybe the bigger impact here. They stood, the Brewers stood to get about $1.8 million worth of draft salary to spend from that pick that they now forfeit and now goes to the Rangers with that. So it will take off of their overall budget about $1.8 million that they would have had to spend on their first 10 rounds, which is not inconsequential and could have been used to potentially overpay Granted, they don't have a high pick this year. They pick at 28th right now, but that could have been used to add to that and potentially take a, a player with a little bit more ceiling. I think that's kind of why I'm okay with it, though, is because they pick so low anyway. And even if, it, you know, the lower you pick, the less having that budget kind of helps you out. Um, eh, maybe that's not true, but, um, it, it, you know, there's not going to be the same kind of high talent there that that would be there on a sort of a normal brewer year. Um, and it, it seems like a good risk to take given the scenario that they're facing in the draft. And, and most of the time, any like any money that you're really going to be able to play with, you need to have a high draft pick. Yeah, exactly. When was the last time we've seen somebody pick low in the draft, have a competitive balance pick and like take somebody that is perceived to be extremely, you know, high ceiling. The vast majority of the time, like, I guess it's a little bit like what, what the Brewers did when they took, uh, Monty Harrison and, and Gatewood, but they didn't even really save money that way. They just kind of had more picks. And I just don't really see where 
you know, you could do what the Phillies did, but they took Mickey Moniak with the first pick and they paid him like $2 million less. And then suddenly you have $2 million to play with in order for that, that budget to really matter. What they would have had to have done is either with their first pick in the, in the first, in the first round or, you know, competitive balance pick or whatever, like one of those, they're going to have to significantly underpay in order to really get anything meaningful out of that. Well, unless they were able to offer, Unless they had somebody lined up for that 39th pick that was like a senior sign that they really liked, but could have, they could have gotten him to sign for, you know, like 500000 or something. If they had that lined up, then they could take that additional $1.3 and plow it into the 28th pick, and they could start pre-draft offering some players more money than what they were getting at slot from other teams and start yeah, pushing that value why, up. So why can't they do that with their second-round pick and basically save the exact same amount of money? Well, there's, it's just one less set of money to play with. I mean, you have 1.8 million less to deal with and one less pick on which to do it. So it, it takes and limits some of the options you could potentially have. Now, they haven't been overly aggressive in doing that. Even this year, when they had Bryce Terang, they only signed him for $400,000 over, I think it was 400000 right? $400,000 over what uh, his slot value was. And he was a you know a high end high school guy who had options could have potentially gone to LSU. So there were he had some leverage over the Brewers, and even then they didn't go super far over the slot to do it. So you know this is maybe more theoretical worrying than it is concrete. Which hey, I'm very on brand right now, right? So well, the, I think the biggest thing when it comes to the draft is um, I, I there are two big things that come for, from it. Number one because it is so hypothetical um there's really nothing to critique other than the possibility of doing something good um and so right like if you if what there is no counter to saying well but they could do something good with it and you're like well right i can't like dissuade you from that because nothing's happened but the the one part that i think also comes with this is the fact uh number one uh claudio still has plenty of years of control left right so you're seeing them amass and using future talent to be able to get people and players that seem to have multiple years of being contributors to a very quality team right you're not renting a player but the other part of this as well is that that then gives you another three years to be able to populate your your farm system also true and yeah i mean i think what you do say to all there is to all there is to critique is what what good may have come is what we just said is because of where they pick their odds of something good happening are less than they normally would be and given that fact you may as well go get somebody who has good stuff has control and plays a position that the brewers value more highly than some other teams would um the way they rely on their bullpen is not like a lot of other teams rely on their bullpen and if you can get a guy who is great in certain situations, they're better at using that than a lot of other teams too. And I also think that there are there are a lot of moves that are going to be happening. Um, and I, you know, again, this is just putting hypotheticals out there. I'm not saying that, you know, I know any of this or or, or what have you. But like, what if they flip Eric Thames for a comp B pick? in in like a month right like they've got they've got santana they've got broxton they've got uh thames they've got chase anderson they've got so many people that we're just like how are they gonna fit all of these people onto the roster like something's going to have to give do you need five outfielders that none of them have options 
I mean, likely not. Nope. And so what are you going to do with all of these things? They can bring pieces back that are not MLB quality, especially because the more you do that and the more that they're, if they flip Domingo Santana for another pitcher, then suddenly you've got another MLB pitcher that doesn't project to make the roster that you have to figure out what to do with. And so there's a lot of moving pieces that they can still do. They can still get picks back because we've already seen what, it, like at least two. Yeah, this there's, was the second one I believe that was moved already. Comp, yeah, there's a pick that's already been moved. There's a comp A pick. They could go and get international slot money that they could go and play with as well. Uh, could make a trade with the Orioles. God knows that they've already traded some, and they don't give a crap. Oh, they're about no, it. they're on the opposite side of that now. They're hoarding it. Nope, they just traded some. Oh, did they really? I thought they were done with that. They're the Orioles. There's no strategy there. Don't no. look for any. They, the Orioles hoarded a bunch, tried to to uh, sign the guy, uh, what was it, Victor Victor Mesa, who ended up going to Miami. Right. So they, they didn't get him. So then they started, they were like, well, we don't have a second choice. And they started trading it away. And then for this upcoming year, this past week, they've already traded some away. They've already started trading. Oh, what? Mike, poor Mike Elias. What, what did he get himself into? Um, okay. So moving on from that big move, uh, there was one other bit of news that came down this week for the Brewers, and it it was nice to see. Is it the Rule 5 draft? No, because nothing happened there. Oh, right. They did take somebody in the in the minor league portion of it. Hold on. We'll do that in a minute. Hold on. Oh, I was, I was joking. I was going to say that they didn't lose anyone in the Rule 5 draft, so they didn't mess up and nobody can be mad. Oh, there's no uh, Miguel, Miguel Diaz uh, right. meltdown. There's a Jake Gatewood still here, so we don't. There's nothing to do, you know, with that. Uh, the lefty I thought they might go and get actually went to the Giants at nine. Um, heard a lot of good things about him, but obviously the Brewers didn't want to go trade up for that. And so Rule Five draft all around. I don't think they really had room. Well, and they didn't go get a lefty because obviously they were working on the Claudio trade. Um, but so they didn't have any room on the big league roster. They didn't lose anyone in the minor league roster. Everyone's happy. All right. Speaking of things that were done this week, uh, Jimmy Nelson agreed to a one-year, three-point-seven million-dollar deal for his second arbitration year, which is almost exactly what he got last year in his first arbitration year. When we knew he was going to be rehabbing most of the season, significant portion of it turned out all of it. Um, thoughts on on Jimmy Nelson coming back for one more year here? I mean, what what level of expectation do you have, JP? Same as last year. No idea until he starts throwing a baseball. I have zero idea of what to expect. Not a doctor. I agree with that assessment. Um, Nobody has any idea except Brewer internal people. And uh, I mean, we know what his ceiling is. Um, He, who knows if he gets back to that, but that, I mean, we don't have anything to go on. It's a, it's a small amount of money. You know, he's shown he could be really good if he's healthy. It's it's good to have him back, but I don't expect anything out of him. I don't think anybody else does either. Are you guys looking forward to the first uh, spring training workout where somebody has a gun on him and it's showing like 87, 88 miles an hour and people just absolutely go insane? That's going to be fun. I'm I'm waiting for that one. No. <laughs> you you lack a sense of adventure, JP. That's likely true. Um, so I I would say about Nelson, the one thing that is pos- I I've been kind of like waffling on whether or not I think the fact that he didn't pitch last year is actually a positive. 
and whether or not that meant they didn't rush him back, they have an opportunity to build up arm strength. He, he can go, you know, he's, he doesn't have any setbacks, can go through a normal uh, spring training and winter conditioning program and do all of those things. Um, especially since he was actually really agitating to get on a mound last year. Or the fact that they kept telling us it wasn't uh, as serious of an injury as it could have been, and it wasn't that big of a deal, and then he didn't pitch all year is also like at the same time kind of worrisome i don't know which side to fall on well they kept saying not a setback but he got to a point and hit a plateau and then stopped progressing at the rate that they wanted i think was how they that was that was couched so you don't really know what that means like if they they don't want to call that a setback because he wasn't like injured or whatever but he didn't continue to progress at the rate he was progressing so considering that this whole thing is a rehab process, that seems like a setback. It seems like, you know, not you're not progressing the way you want to. So I'm just but glad that, that at this point in Brewer history that he's basically house money, that they're smart enough and good enough with their rotation and their depth that they're they're not counting on him to come back and be an ace. Because, you know, at any time in the history of the Brewers, when they having a Nelson they would absolutely be counting on him to come back and be an ace. That would be the plan, and it's not. So that's good. If he comes back and he's great, that's great. That's more wins for our already good team, not not your good team becoming a terrible team. And that yeah, is, and yeah, really important to note that they don't necessarily need him. He what he brings is, you know, a potential upside that they lack in some ways, but you know, maybe also having some of their other young pitchers. So I think that was also a piece that that went into last year's decision to not actually throw him on the mound because they were competing for an NL central. uh, Well, a a wild card. And then they were competing for the NL central. And like, what were you, you didn't have, there was no opportunity to kind of like ease him back in. Like it was basically like he was going to maybe pitch in the minors and then come in and say, sorry, we don't have time for you to like get back up to speed. You have to be really good right now. And they could have just looked at their rotation exactly like Paul was saying. It's doing well enough right now, our pitching staff is. Let's not mess with it. We've already got guys like Zach Davies we're going to try to work back in, right? And we've already got Gio Gonzalez, and we've done all of these things. And it was just one of those situations where they were like, let's be safe. Let's get you into an off-season program. Let's get you into spring. Let's let you build up your arm strength. Do everything on a very slow schedule. And then we'll see where we are. Any chance that they ease him back in, not necessarily in the bullpen, but as more of an abbreviated starter where they perhaps piggyback him with somebody else and don't ask him to go much more than 50, 60 pitches at a time, at least early in the season, to ease him back into things? Because we keep hearing about how this team is, you know, blending the line between starter and reliever and that was a big Stearns quote this week I, that I think came it would out. be I think it'd be weird if they did anything other than that um it would be a digression from their normal starting strategy I mean if he's fully healthy and can get through an order a third time because he is a good pitcher they'll let him do that but since he's not that yet and he is working back I mean that's what they do with pitchers who are just less talented too that's I think that's absolutely what they'll do when he comes back well there was there was even speculation that like he might get some time in the minors in April to kind of ease his way back. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. It, it depends on what they need and where they're at as far as, you know, what the what the rotation, who else is 
sort of establish themselves, I could see a, a possibility where there really isn't a spot for him. Um, just because some other guys have looked really good in camp and they want to they want to do something else to ease him in. So it could go a bunch of different ways. Uh, there's been some news also that the Brewers are interested in Daniel Murphy and Jed Lowry. And that was reported by Ken Rosenthal over the last couple days here on Saturday, Sunday. And the way that I was reading some of that, it, I wouldn't be shocked if by the time people hear this on Monday, we're recording on Saturday afternoon this week. I wouldn't be shocked if there was something done in that regard by that time. Well, and they met with Ian Kinsler, who ended up signing with the Padres. Yeah. But they're 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 doing exactly what they do normally. It's exactly what they did with starting rotation last year. There, there's a lot of second basemen. They're talking to all of them. They probably want to see who wants to take a one year deal. Right, Kinsler got I, two. Right, Kinsler did get two. Yeah. yeah, I don't see any real scenario in which Jed Lowry doesn't get a multi-year deal but they're probably just trying to see like who is the individual who's going to give them a price point that they feel comfortable with they likely have a bunch of ideas out there and they want to see where it where it falls down and so i i bet you that you probably hear that they're interested in more than just these three people as well well yeah i would imagine they keep looking around given these two though if you had to take it and choose between the two uh what what would be your preference, Paul? Um, Lowry, I don't like Murphy. I, as on a personal level, I don't know. I guess he's fine as a player, but um, Lowry's good. Like he's he's an actual useful, good player that he'll get a multi year deal. Like JP said, for that reason, like he's a, he can be useful to a good team um, on a long standing basis. And the Brewers probably don't have a spot for him for that length of time, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point. Um, but I don't like Murphy. I don't like having guys on the team who I don't like rooting for. So um, I would just pass on that altogether if I had my choice of it. Yeah, and I mean Lowry's a guy who could fill in still at shortstop. Correct? You could you could use him as a backup shortstop. He could fill in at third base. He could be a true utility infielder once Hira is ready or something else happens. You could you could still continue to use him all around the diamond in a in a way that Daniel Murphy's pretty much limited to second base and a bad second base at that. So well, JP, I mean, but he's, he's not though. He does also play first base and, and that is something in which again, that would not speak well for, for Eric Thames's chance of making the big league roster this year. But there is something to be said for saying you've got somebody who can play second base for, you know, a month or so until Kesson Hira is magically ready to come up. And then you have a lefty that can then spell at first base or at second base, depending on what needs to be able to happen there. Obviously, this is something that I talked about all uh, all summer as I didn't realize that Oakland was actually having a good year that I actually like Jed, Jed Lauer quite a bit. And he's going to be 35 this year, um, but he's had back to back basically three to four win seasons and he can play multiple different positions. He bats. Uh, he's a switch switch hitter. He can take walks. He doesn't necessarily strike out a lot. He is another veteran presence to be able to bring in. And once you do have Kesson Hira up, not only can he mentor him and kind of help him get along, he can play multiple different positions. You have more coverage at shortstop just in case Orlando Arcia has one of his first halves in which he's borderline unplayable. And it just gives you a lot more flexibility. And it's one of the reasons why I've talked about Estrubal Cabrera as well. I just didn't think that Jed Lowry was... I'm frankly going to leave Oakland. Um, it sounded like they were trying to work on a multi-year deal for him while he was in Oakland this past year. 
Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if there are a lot of teams that can potentially offer more money that could use somebody like Jed Lowry on a couple of year deal. All right. Um, so moving on to some questions that we got, um, we had a patron Patreon question from Jason Donlinger. And part of this was already answered because Ian Kinsler did sign for two years, but, um, what do you think it would take to sign Wilson Ramos to be a catcher for the Brewers this year? And is it something that you could see them doing? Because the Brewers were reported to have met with him along with Kinsler this week at the winter meetings. And I'll give you kind of a baseline to work with here. MLB trade rumors had him getting three years and $36 million from the Astros. Is that a deal you could see the Brewers giving him? No. That doesn't necessarily mean that they won't because I also didn't see them going for a five-year deal on Lorenzo Cain last year either. And they, not because I think it was a bad deal, and we discussed that at length. I just didn't see them going out and giving a five-year deal to anyone. But I don't really know what to make of Wilson Ramos, whether or not he's going to be able to make more money just because of a thin catching market. And he's basically, you know, the guy other than Yasmani Grandal that won't cost you uh, a draft pick. But the last time he hit free agency, he had a wonderful year with the Nationals. 2016, he had 22 homers, three-win year, hit 307 with a 354 on base percentage. By all, I really liked him that year, and he only signed a two-year $12 million deal with Tampa. And that's because he goes through years in which he's uh, not all that great, whether that's because of injuries, but... You know, 2017, he was based not even a one-year player, according to Fangraphs. And 2018, I think a lot of people might say uh, contract year. Maybe you're a little bit more motivated, though I don't know if that's fair assessment or whatsoever. Um, but it's kind of the same deal 2015-2016, in which 2015, he was uh, not very good. 2016, he was great. 2017, he wasn't very good. 2018, he was one of the better catchers in the National League. And so I don't... By the every other rule you're getting two bad years in one good year. Is that well, no. what you're saying? If you're on a three year deal? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not making like a, you know, the giants win the world <laughs> on an even year argument. Um, I'm much more making an argument of saying that because of that inconsistency, the market was not willing to pay him more than two, two years, $12 million the last time he hit and he was younger and he had a better year at the plate in 2016 than he did in 2018. And so really for him to make more money, it's going to have to be that there are more teams looking for pitching or somebody doesn't want to give up a draft pick and therefore he's kind of the only option or I don't and like Real Mudo still out there in which somebody could pay somebody less money and obviously more in prospects, but there, there are a lot of moving parts. I don't necessarily see him getting that big of a contract. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, it's pretty likely he, he gets two. Um, and who really knows? Part of his issues, I think, is he's not like a disaster defensively, but he's not elite by any stretch. And No, he, I just had it pulled up on baseball perspective. He's like average. In terms he's of, basically, yeah, just about average in terms of all that advanced metric catching stuff. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, people people look for that. And it, it's, it hurt the Brewers last year that their catching was a bit of a black hole offensively. And they did a good job scouting to fill the defensive end of it. But with Arcia playing and with the catcher and pitcher, the back of their lineup was definitely a weakness. And it's something that Ramos would fix, um, probably. Even his bad years are better than what they have 
coming back in terms of offense. So I, I, I think this might be a good fit. I would not be surprised if they sign him. Um, I think that he can be had fairly reasonably. I don't think he'll get that 336. That sounds too high. I can't see anybody paying that for him. Um, but he seems like just a, a good, like he slots into a position of need for them and providing a value that they need. Um, and I don't think he'll be that expensive when it all is said and done. The question I have is just how much are they willing to go for him given how clearly they value catcher defense? Because what we saw last year, if you look at on um, baseball prospectus, they have the top uh, 100 and well, it's all 117 people who caught last year. Okay. And Wilson Ramos is sitting down at do, 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 45. He was better the year prior, though, right? I believe so, yes. He was. But I'm just looking at this one. Eric Kratz was ranked eighth. Eric Kratz was an absolute wizard, metrically especially, uh, defensively. And Manny Pena was no slouch himself at 20th. Those are two very good defensive catchers. And I think it's fair to say that this is a thing they're looking for. And maybe that's the Matt Arnold influence coming over from Tampa Bay, where they, for years, have been all about, we will happily you know, throw away a ton of at-bats to uh was it the other molina brother which which molina am i thinking about jose molina jose. yeah they threw away tons of at-bats to him because he was a god framing he's a framing god he he absolutely would would steal all kinds of strikes for the pitchers i think that it's a mistake to look at at the brewers as having an exact type like that and for a couple of reasons one is that Framing has famously contracted in terms of the value you can add over the last few years because catchers have started concentrating on it and become good at it. And the other thing is, I think the, the Brewers are really good at buying and utilizing tools, and you know they're not afraid. They don't just stick a guy out there because he's you know personal catcher because it's his day or whatever. They'll if they have an offensive catcher and a defensive catcher, they'll they'll pair a guy who benefits with a defensive catcher with him, and they'll pair a guy who maybe doesn't need as much framing help with the offensive catcher, and they'll spot him in in parts of the game where he can help more. And I think what they really try to acquire is just guys who are good situationally that they can use to the best of their abilities. Uh, they're really good at that. So that's one of the reasons I think he's kind of a good fit. He, he's he might not get that that framing look from clubs that some of the other defensive catchers will get on on the market, and you might be able to get them a little cheaper and get that offense for that. Well, the other thing that I I think that's I think that's a good point. Um, one of the other things I think pigeonholing them in terms of uh, focusing so much on catcher defense is dangerous because. What the Brewers are very, very good at doing, and we saw this with Moustakis, we saw this with the with Scope, regardless of you know people's feelings about that, is what they what they are doing at all times is trying to make the best of a bad situation. And what they did last year, especially when going to get Eric Kratz, is they uh, they were they were banking on I don't well banking's maybe not the right word, but um, Manny Pena had such a good year in in twenty seventeen that they were like we're better off spending our resources elsewhere. They obviously did that to the outfield and, and that worked very, very well for them. But once Manny Pena was, uh, it was clear that they needed an upgrade. What they couldn't necessarily go and do, they, you can't sign someone in the, in the middle of the year. And it's not like Real Muto was suddenly going to be available and the Brewers didn't necessarily have pieces that were going to match up there. 
And so what they did is, they, well, what's the best way that we can get the most valuable catcher we can is we can go get somebody who's fantastic defensively. They can go get somebody who can frame a lot of runs. That's going to help our run prevention, which is something that they needed to be able to maximize because they didn't have the best possible pitchers that you could have there. And so what they did is they went and maximized that. Now they have options that are arguably, well, not arguably, they have options that are better. And the biggest problem for me is not whether or not the Brewers would want Wilson Ramos. It's the fact that you have a lot of contenders that need catching. And that's the only reason that might make me think that Ramos can actually get it. You've got the Mets clearly want catching. You've got Astros that need catching. You've got uh, the Dodgers that are going to have to deal with the fact that Grandal is gone. You've got the Brewers that probably need some catching. There are question marks even in terms of uh, in Chicago, it doesn't seem like they really want Contreras to be their catcher. And so you've got like pretty much down the line, a lot of teams that are that are looking for a catcher. Um, and so that might be able to actually, I don't know, like flood the market a little bit to the point that he is allowed to get a little bit more than he would on, on a market that's a little bit more barren. Well, to that point, the reason that the Cubs don't necessarily want Wilson Contreras catching he comes up as 116 out of 117 of the catchers this year in terms of I've, defensive stats. And it's, I mean, he, he legitimately really has some issues. I was trying to be polite just okay. in case your brother listening. Well, that's not a concern. It, it, it's it's fine. We can we can rag on Wilson Ramos. He looks or, as bad on, as his numbers, Wilson Contreras. <laughs> he looks terrible back there. It looks like if I was trying to catch. Yeah, whereas like... Yasmani Grandel looks bad, and we especially saw a lot of that in the in the uh, NLCS. But came out on top in terms of numbers. He is the the best catcher in some of these metrics. So, you know, it's always a little I, bit different. I say, to tell you the truth, like I understand the concussion issues, but I'd really like Cervelli if if he was actually there there are rumors that he's going to be available like he is somebody that is not only good defensively but he was uh arguably the the best offensive catcher in baseball last year um and there's some there are some indications that aircrafts might not have actually been quite as terrible as he looked with the bat last year though you always have to take that he his uh uh deserved runs created was actually higher than Manny Pena it was like a 93 yeah. so he was he was actually supposedly a little bit better. How much do you want to bet on that with like a 38-year-old? Not I, at all. Probably not very much. Zero. But if you're going to have him there anyway because of the defense, if you are going to be running him out there, the fact that he has maybe a little bit of offensive upside that he didn't show last year is at least something to hang your hat on. My, my controversial hot take that I will bring to the party is... If the Brewers go out and get starting level catcher, I don't think it's Eric Kratz that's going to be replaced. Oh, I agree with that. I think Pena's gone if that happens. I totally agree. Oh, hmm, hmm, hmm. I, I thought, would. I, thought I would that, be surprised. Is that a hot take? I thought that was the conventional wisdom on the subject. <laughs> well, Pena's me on the furnace. <laughs> Pena's thirty one, thirty two, and Kratz is thirty eight. I mean, like, I don't think that they would be concerned with age considering they would largely just be looking at the 2019 season. Yep. I mean, you would, it would have to be a 2019 only decision for somebody that is trying to argue for Jacob Nottingham being a possible solution. I'm surprised you're worried about the long-term health of down the road, down the road. 
backup catcher. It's not like Jacob Nottingham's going to sit in the minors for another three years. He That's probably true. doesn't have options for that long. No, I think last year was his first year on the 40-man, though. So I think that he still has a little bit of time left to be able to do that. Anyway, moving right along, uh, I have a question from Justin, uh, Justin Sayan or Sayan, Yeah, whatever. Sorry, Justin. Um, what's the prediction for our starting infield on opening day? What do you think it's going to look like on opening day? Noting that they are playing the Cardinals, so presumably a right-handed starter. Nicholas or uh, who is the kid? Flaherty. Yeah. So presumably a right-handed starter. Who do you see starting in the infield on opening day? JP? Say you want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) I think that they'll end up uh, settling probably for Daniel Murphy. Um, I think it'll probably be uh, Shaw. It'll be Arcia. And I'm going to say it's Aaron Perez because he never goes away. And, And over first. Uh, we'll have Jesus Aguilar. But if I'm actually, that's mostly just uh, a cop out of saying I don't know who's going to be at second base, but I do know that Aaron Perez will always be on the roster. Yes, he he will be around long after the rest of us are gone. I actually agree with you. I think the same. Um, I think Thames is probably gone. I think it will be Hearn at second base, and he will be on the team forever. Um, and RC and Shaw, too. I, I guessing anything different than that would be speculating hugely and that just i'm interested to see what they do end up doing at first base just um i uh, i I do think that they want to have a platoon over there at least the option of it and so it is very possible like yeah we'll not be starting that game at first base but i do not know who to put there other than him and yeah he's a good enough option all right um speaking of are you not going to have one oh it's the same yeah, I mean, oh. I I would love to say the second base would be the you know the field whoever they bring in because that's probably more likely. But any one person, Hernandez is more likely than any one person. So <laughs> looking at it, boring. looking at it objectively, no, this is boring. I'm gonna take uh, Travis Shaw. I'll take Orlando Arcia. I'll take Daniel Murphy, and I'll take Eric Thames. All right. What about Mike Mustakas at third, and no. Travis Shaw at second? No, don't think um, so. <laughs> but I well, I actually don't think Eric Thames is going to be on the roster. Today. I don't. I don't either. I think it's going to be too big of a crunch. It's going to make me so sad too. Yeah. I love having him on the roster. Put him in. Put him in right field. Um, Jason Spitz asks, and this is related to what we've kind of been talking about. If the plan is to bring up Hura by May, is the need to pick up a free agent second baseman overblown? Are we all spending a lot too much time on this because Hura is just waiting in the wings to come up, Paul? Oh, um, I, I overvalue prospects and draft picks. And so, yes, I agree with that. It is overblown. And I would spend my money elsewhere and just play Hearn until he's ready. Um, that's fine with me. And you can figure out something with Shaw going over there, too, because he can play second base, too. So um, there's all kinds of ways to solve this problem without giving money to a free agent second baseman. And I, that's what I would do. You have one, like, he's your best prospect. He's going to play there soon. Don't go and spend money where you don't have to for a guy who's not going to play there that long. Uh, I I disagree. I, I think um, I think that it's it's actually really important to go and get a free agent second baseman. And I do not think it is important to go and get somebody that can only play second base because I think what the Brewers need more than anything is coverage across uh, across the infield because they've got, issues in terms of uh, 
question marks is like Jesus Aguilar, the guy we saw in the second half last year, if that's the case. Uh, he, I mean, he's fine. Hey, you're but stepping maybe, on the next question, JP. But maybe needs a platoon partner. Uh, do you do you want to have Aaron Perez being at second base for an entire month? Uh, likely not, unless he you can like time it with his uh, one one or two month offensive hot streak, which is always nice. And then you'd have big questions at what's happening at shortstop in terms of is Orlando Arce a kind of a defensive guy or is he actually going to be able to hit like he did in the last month, month and a half or so? And Travis Shaw, as much as I I. I think Travis Shaw is a, is a stalwart, but he does um, occasionally have some injury problems. And so you need to have somebody that can that can fill in there. And so right now, basically what we're saying is Aaron Perez and eventually Mauricio Dubon are like the people that are going to fill in across the board. And I think that you need to be able to have quite a bit of an upgrade, whether it's Estrubal Cabrera, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's Daniel Murphy, whether it's Jed Lowry, whether it's Marwin Gonzalez, like somebody who can play multiple infield positions because they're going to need it across the entire season. All right. So that next question that I was going to ask you guys was uh, from John Robertson. He asked a bunch of them. I want to make sure we got one of them in at least. Which Aguilar will we see in 2019? He carried the offense in the first half, but really tailed off in the second was this an all-star hangover or more of a return to what we should expect going forward? Paul? So I do worry about him a little bit, um, partially because at the start of last year when baseball prospectuses, um, when Pakota came out and comps came out, I believe it was his number one, but it was two. It was Brian LaHare, um, Cub famous for playing a lights-out um, half season of first base for the Cubs and making the all-star team and then basically never hitting again for the rest of his entire life. Um and you can kind of see how that might happen with Aguiar a little bit. Um, I don't think he'll ever be that bad because he's obviously massively powerful. And um, even if he starts to have contact issues, he's a good eye too. Um, he'll probably at least hit enough home runs to justify being on a team as a backup. But um, there's no guarantee he's going to be that that first half guy again. And I I actually think first base is a, a spot where they, they could stand to upgrade a little bit. So... Um, the answer is probably in the middle a little bit, but I certainly wouldn't count on him being a perennial all-star. Yeah, I mean, looking at his month-by-month OPSs, um, in April, March, he put up a 956. In May, it was a 920. In June was his monster month. He had 1.099. And then in the second half, it did tail off, 770, 877, and 771. But you'll note, none of those are bad months. Those are all perfectly acceptable months for a, a first baseman, so... You are selectively choosing your endpoints because it fits what you want. I we've routinely talked about this, and that every single time somebody says, "Well, if you look at the second half, you complain about the endpoint," and then you choose more like random endpoints. I didn't choose the months. That was the Julian calendar. Don't blame me for that. I'm just going by what it says on the sheet here. <laughs> yes, That's if you if you take the end of his June. And or so the end of his July, right after the All-Star break, when he was awful and lump it into the second half, the second half numbers dragged down. So it's essentially being dragged down by like a really rotten two weeks or week and you're, a half. You're making the really convenient argument about when people say, if you got rid of the months where he were, they were really good, they were bad. I'm and just you're saying, doing, I'm just saying, like, these are the months. He was never truly bad for any extended period of time here. Yeah, I'm just saying that that's a weird thing to hang your hat on. Um so I think that largely what 
Paul is talking about is one of the big reasons why I actually think it's going to be Daniel Murphy, because he is somebody that can hit well enough and handle first base that he does give you some cover there. Um, but Aguilar, to his credit, checks out really, really nicely in terms of uh, in terms of his DRC. Like he's, that's true. He, he was very high in, in DRC when they released it. He was like one of the top 30 or so, I think, 35. Yeah, yeah, yeah him, was, and, him was, and Shaw and, and Yelich were all very yeah. much in that top group on the first page. I'd, I'd be interested, and in, in the leaderboard don't, the leaderboard doesn't allow us to kind of like slice and dice the numbers in terms of you know month by month or halves or anything like that. You're just looking at the the course of the entire season. I'd be really interested to see what his DRC was l- later in the year and whether or not that that's really just being buoyed on the fact that he was so good for a couple of months early in the year. All right, Dylan Jacobs asks, and oh, I've been waiting for this one. Still think non-tendering scope was the wrong choice after he got seven million from Minnesota. For 2019 7.5 <laughs> so for those of you who aren't aware uh jp and i both took a, a pretty strong stance that we didn't exactly understand what was going on with the the non-tendering of scope and paul i know you wrote back when the scope trade happened that you didn't understand why they made the trade in the first place yep so go ahead paul you get first crack at this here okay um i i think I, I, first of all, I'm fine having letting him go for that amount of money. I don't think Scope's particularly good. Um, yes, he did put up a gigantic season a few years ago, but um, I I don't think he's particularly good defensively. I hate watching his swing. I don't know how he ever makes hard contact. Um, and uh, I, I know a lot of this is probably overreacting to a terrible, terrible second half of the season last year, but there's a lot in his peripherals about hard hit ball rates and um things like that 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 may lend to the theory that he's just not that good a hitter who elevates a home run out every now and then but besides all that um he's uh, he's a second baseman that is a place here is going to play he's not a good shortstop I mean, he can play all around the diamond like a lot of guys can play all around, all around the diamond but he's not particularly good defensively uh, there's no special reason to have scope on the team as to whether it was like what they're thinking by letting him go after investing in him, um, I think that they saw a lot of the things that are problems with him and decided that they'd made a mistake and to move on from it. And their general manager said as much publicly. So um, it's good to be able to admit your mistakes and move on from them. It's a virtue. JP? I, I come back to the point that I actually don't have a huge problem with them cutting bait. Uh, my, my problem is... I don't understand what they were doing picking him up in the first place because there is nothing that you can glean in two months that anything you were doing in terms of your advanced scouting couldn't have already picked up. There is absolutely nothing that you could have gotten there. Which leads to the idea that we both kind of hit on a couple weeks ago that this was bad process at some point. Like somewhere somebody's doing something bad here because they shouldn't have spent what they spent on him to then just say after what happened over the, the last few months, hey, we're we're out here because th- there isn't really a good reason for them to have decided in that amount of time. Oh, hey, we were completely wrong. If they liked him enough to have made the move in the first place, then they shouldn't just be so quick to cut bait on the back end. It doesn't make sense. Well, and I think one of the other things that. I guess I look at quite a bit is the fact that 2015 
2017 and for you know at least part of 2018 but he dealt with injuries and and kind of messed up playing time and was bad for about a month and a half um he was a better than average league hitter in terms of drc like that i understand that it looks about as bad as like when domingo santana can't hit the broadside of a barn but like there's not the the overlap between people who really like domingo santana and like really hate jonathan scope boggles my mind to the point that like i just i can't understand what's happening um and so and i actually i and i know that i i like jonathan scope uh in terms of a hitter i liked him when he was a prospect i i liked him when i i saw him down in the minors um i i was told by uh quite a few non-brewer scouts that when the brewers were picking him up that they were in huge favor of the move of the move and people doing advanced scouting said that he was absolutely clobbering the ball and that uh, that it was reminding them of 2017 when he was coming back from his injury. And so there are a lot of things that I like about it. Um, but I, if the point of the question is saying that, like, do we think that non-tendering scope was the wrong choice because, like, it proves that it was the right choice because he made less money on the open market, I don't see too much there just because there's a lot of second basemen on the market, which is one of the reasons why I think the Brewers cut bait. And like the arbitration system means that you, it's not like they were going to get to decide that, oh, we only think he's worth 7 million. Like the arbitration structure is going to cause them to pay what they're going to pay. Well, and the other thing with it too is he signed so quickly. And part of that is he took a one year deal very fast. Does that mean that that was the best deal that was potentially out there for him this offseason? No. But what is this? It gave him a very clear path to playing time. Minnesota offers him a very clear path to playing time that there's no there, there's not going to be somebody hanging in the wings somebody behind him to potentially push him out of the position or whatever he's going to be minnesota sink or swim second baseman this year and that has a lot of value so to jump on that offer and say hey as a 26 year old who's going into his 27 year 27 season i'm going to take a one-year deal go prove myself and then hit the market again as a 27 year old next year and and potentially clean up like it makes perfect sense so just the fact that he signed for what he signed for doesn't mean that was the best he could have done it was just the deal that made the most sense and it got it done and out of the way and now he has a place to go play and and prove what he's worth for you know 2020 and beyond i wonder if he uh got a little phone call from uh lance lynn who was like look i signed a one-year deal with minnesota i frankly wasn't any good all year and i still signed for three years third for 30 however million lance lynn signed how did lynn lance lynn get that deal i nobody knows nobody it was like knows. it was like the tyler chatwood deal where i looked at it and everyone was well except the tyler chatwood deal everyone's like yeah look at his roadie array and everyone was like but he can't throw strikes nope. and then the cubs were like oh we can't throw strikes and we're like we know um so last year, I do think it's interesting because I pulled up the the baseball perspective page. He was basic. He was borderline two win player last year, not Lance Lynn. Uh, Jonathan Scope it was super weird considering he wasn't very good for a long period of year. Mm-hmm. But is. that just goes to show how low the offensive bar actually is at second base, and how you don't I, have to be that great. And the fact that I, you know he still hit what twenty two home runs or something like. Well, there's there's that, but it also actually likes his glove quite a bit, which is weird. Well, he I, he isn't a terrible defender. I don't. I, he looks bad to me. He, I was gonna say I, <laughs> he looks bad. I think defensively he has um, 
question marks. Okay, moving on. If, All right. he, if he got to play against himself more, his on-base percentage would be much higher than it is. <laughs> That's fair. That is he, fair. Is that because he couldn't throw strikes? Oh, you mean him playing? Him playing, like, yes. There, he doesn't he doesn't ground out to second base all that often. <laughs> all right, just a couple more questions here. Um, what is it going to take to make the Brewers trade for Sonny Gray? Um, that's from Brew Crew Ball thirteen on Twitter. I mean, does Sonny Gray just need to become a different person? Yeah, I think a gun up to somebody's head. I don't know. Do do we want Sonny Gray? Does anybody? He, he seems to be the the choice of bring me a name that I know from a couple of years ago who was good and. Man, did you see what the the Yankees supposedly asked the Reds for? Yes, I did. And no. I laughed and I laughed. Taylor Trammell, who's a top 25 prospect. Oh, neat. Yeah, that was <laughs> it was like Yes, I know oh. his, I know his name. That's how you know he's a good prospect. Yeah, he's he's quite good and uh they're not going to get anything like I don't know Sonny Gray is almost upside down in terms of money. I mean, you can squint and believe that he's going to, you know, rebound and whatever. And so you can justify paying him whatever the RB cost is. It's like 7.5 or 8 or something that it's going to cost this year. But why would anybody give up anything to for the privilege of paying that to see if he can be useful and rebound? Like, that just doesn't seem to make any sense to me, which we talked about last week. So, And I'm pretty sure what every team knows is the Yankees are going to make a deal eventually. And if you're a rebuilding team... It's not a big deal when you get him. You don't need him in December. You can wait until March. And so basically everyone who would want Sonny Gray and take him on as a reclamation project, whether it's the Padres, whether it's the Reds, whether it's the Marlins, like who, whoever, whomever, I don't know. Uh, and But whichever team is going for that deal, they have zero interest in like, anything other than waiting for the Yankees to come calling and be like, okay, we really need to get rid of him now. Yeah, that's that's one just not happening for a lot of reasons. So, yeah. All right. And finally, we have a Patreon question from Michael Heitkamp. It seems that there are many ways to win over the course of 162 games. uh, But are there conclusions we can draw from which teams played well in the playoffs, specific skills or roster construction? I mean, this is a very big question, and it's one that I mean, basically goes back as far as I can remember knowing about baseball analysts analysis, which is. You know, how do you square the idea of the large sample of the regular season where everything is, you know, you're working over a big sample and trying to figure out what wins in the postseason? And I mean, it's a question that's plagued people for years. How do you win in the postseason? How do you manage to get through those now three rounds plus of playoffs, depending on if you're a wild card or not? Thoughts, well, Paul? I, oh, um, well, I, I just just to clarify, is this is this asking? about which teams play well in the playoffs and what kind of roster constructions play well in the playoffs? Or is it asking, can we draw any conclusions for the upcoming year based on who played well in the playoffs? Last? No, no, no. What I think what he's asking here is, are there specific skills and roster constructions that work better for the playoffs that you should build around for the playoffs? That's the way I read okay. this anyway. So, um, Paul? I don't, I don't really think there are, um, with a few little caveats, like, Many, 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 many years ago, um, a bunch of baseball prospectus writers wrote a book um, called Baseball by the Numbers. It had a chapter in it called Why Doesn't Billy Bean Shit Work in the Playoffs, um, which introduced the concept of the secret sauce, which was a baseball prospectus stat for a little while. 
Um, Nate Silver, I think, actually came up with it. After a while, he left. Colin Wires took over and did a bunch of work on it and decided it was garbage and put out a post saying, sorry about this. We're retiring it. Don't use it anymore. Um, and I think it basically said bullpens were super important. And I can't I actually don't remember. I've put it out of my brain because it was garbage not worth talking about. But um, the fact of the matter is that playoffs are small sample size and who you're playing and luck matters a lot more than any objective high-level team construction that you're going to put forth. Most of what worked in the playoffs this year was having a super awesome team of all-stars all the way through that could beat the crud out of everybody else that they play. Um, I will say I, I do think that the Brewers were pretty well suited to play in the playoffs because a lot of managers in the playoffs turn into what the Brewers were all season in the playoffs, using your good relievers longer, playing more matchups, going to your bullpen more often. Um, But that's not a new thing. It's new that the Brewers did it outside of the playoffs, but it's not new that other teams did it in the playoffs. And they were particularly adept when they got there at just doing what they'd been doing, especially since the start of September. Yeah. So I I don't really think there's a, a magic formula or that you can really draw anything out. I mean, uh, the outside of the Brewers spend a lot of money, get a lot of great talent, and that's what works most of the time. And you're not going to be able to outsmart your way around that most of the time. JP, yeah, I I kind of I waffle, and I think this is largely because of what we're talking about. That there is no clear sense of what works because in some ways you're saying over the course of 162 games, depth is paramount. Right? We've we've learned that. This is one of the most important things that you can do in, in in the playoffs. It does seem to me that it would be much more beneficial to have really strong impact players that can come in and just dominate, especially especially pitchers that you can just rely on to be workhorses or come in and be Josh Hader for three innings and you know piss everybody off in, in Los Angeles. Um, but then you have to hope that they're good in that time period and that they don't hit a, a cold streak like Christian Yelich did during the postseason for the Brewers this year. Right. Right, absolutely. And so in some ways, then you're saying, well, depth actually should matter more because you give yourself more opportunities to have guys get on hot streaks and all of these things. But then there is the argument that uh, Unieski Betancourt brings to the table in which in 2011, he was actually quite good in the postseason. And I don't know if we would qualify him as like quality depth. Well, or so, <laughs> Kratz and Arcia were actually pretty good in the playoffs. And Wade Miley hit like mad in the playoffs for some reason. Woodruff too. Woodruff yeah, was Woodruff out there too. hitting bombs. Well, there's one of us in this podcast right now that called a home run from Brandon Woodruff before the season. Thank you very much. It's me. Yeah, uh, you did that just purely as a well. Why not? It could be Brandon Woodruff. Who knows? And it's like whatever. No, you, if you <laughs> listen to the the podcast, you will hear that I said not only was I going to say yes, but I picked who it was, uh, and then Brent Suter ruined it. Um, <laughs> but. I, so I don't really know where I come on because I think one of the biggest things that we've learned over the course of the year, whether it's the Orioles, whether it's the the Royals, right? Like I think one of the most important things that you can do is have a really good bullpen and quality defense because if you can try to figure out a way to be able to have things like that that don't um, that don't like go into slumps, you, yes, Money Grandall, you know, accepted. Um, in general those are constants that you can bring in that you're going to eliminate a lot of luck from. Um, I think that was a big part of the secret sauce Paul was talking about too, is defense because that had kind of been speculated for a while that like really good defense, especially like at the key positions like catcher and shortstop and center field, that that's a big deal in the postseason. 
Well, and it like it logically tracks, but at the same time, you can always come up with examples that like counter that, right? Or or teams that had just wonderful defensive options at that time and just like gave up gobs and gobs of runs. Well, well starting think- pitchers just dominate the whole time for some reason, and the bullpen barely comes in at all. Like that's happened a few times. Like the last time the White Sox won it, I think they their bullpen barely pitched at all. Yeah, I think in that World Series when they swept, uh, the bullpen pitched like hardly any innings. It was really the starters going like seven, eight innings, you know, yeah. shutting it down every night. And it's funny too. You think about the wide variances in postseasons. Like think back about the 2011 postseason where it was just an all-out home run derby at a time when scoring was down throughout the game. Like scoring had had been dipping, and we'd seen the the surge in strikeouts and everything. And then that 2011 postseason that the Brewers were part of. Remember that World Series between the the Cardinals and the the Rangers where they were just bashing the ball around, and it was you know there was like no pitching in that in that whatsoever, and. Then you think about, you know, what happened a few years later when the Royals are on their run and it really was just like get the ball. They they kind of did what the Brewers did this year, which was grind it through four or five innings of a starter and then hand it over to, you know, one great reliever after another. And they were able to grind their way to a World Series and then a, a World Series win the next year. There seems to be different ways to do it every year. So then the question to me sort of becomes, is it about having like a coherent strategy like to have an identity or are we putting that on those teams in the post analysis of it are we looking at it and going well clearly the royals won that those that world series and went to another because of the great bullpen and whatever and we're missing some of the larger aspects i'm not sure i say i think the way that i look at it and this is a really unsatisfying way to look at it and i'm sure a lot of people won't like it is i think it's I think luck plays so much more into it than than we care to admit, and I don't think that there's actually a specific roster construction that plays well in the bull in in uh, in um, in the playoffs. I think it just comes down to can you hit, can you hit, and can you pitch at the right moment? Can you get hot? Uh, can you have a few things go the right way? Can you have it where you know what was it Lorenzo Cain or whoever it was in in. Uh, no, it wasn't Lorenzo Cain. It was I can't remember. It maybe it was Christian Yelich, but whoever, you know, Chris Chris Taylor in left field ended up making that incredible oh, catch. Yeah. The diving catch. Like, yeah. I mean, can you can you hit it six inches further? Right? Like, can it carry just a little bit longer or whatever it is? I, I just think that it's such fine margins. Um that luck is just playing so much into it, which is why, you know, and maybe that's why managers don't necessarily matter all that much and why the Yankees kind of fired their manager and then they ended up making it to the postseason anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's it is always going to be a large portion of luck in in how that works because you know look at look at Cleveland as an example. I brought this up to somebody this week. Look at Cleveland in 2016, 2017. 2016, they were hurt. They were scrambling to try to find things that would work, and they took the Cubs to the tenth inning of Game Seven of the World Series and would have you know been in a position to win had things broken just slightly differently. Had things gone just slightly better. You know, there was two runners on instead of one for Raji Davis. They win the World Series. And then the next year, the Cleveland is legitimately a much better team. The, the starters are healthy. Everything's going good. They, they have that huge winning streak in August into September. And so you can't even say that they weren't hot. They were super hot. They were, you know, a team I picked to win the World Series because of that, because I'm an idiot. And they go out in the division series to, you know, the Astros. So, like, it really does just kind of come down to, 
I don't want to say a roll of the dice, but it, it kind of is. It's there's not a lot that you can really glean from that. Yeah, I mean it's it's a lot of luck. There's tons of luck, and in in any short series in any sport, that's just how it is. That's uh, we give up some some predictability for some excitement. Um, they're not really fair, but that's just how playoffs are. And um, there's no way to plan for something like that. It's designed to not be planned for. It's designed for excitement, not for the best team that ground out 105 wins to go out and dominate. So, Such is baseball. Such is life. Such is baseball. Such is life. All right. Um, JP, do you want to do our thank you here? Well, I was just trying to say such is life. What's the playoffs of life? I think that's that's happening in the federal government right now. <laughs> I don't know. Some short sample randomness. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, special thanks to, uh, I believe it's pronounced, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong via email or on Twitter or, or however, but uh, Alex uh, Benazeski. That's the way I'd go. But thank you so much for for joining the uh, the the Patreon. Hope you enjoyed the minor league podcast this past past week and didn't mind the little bit of soccer chat that we started out with before we got to the the top ten list. And a reminder once again to everybody that if you would like to hear that, especially this month's uh, top ten lists, but also past months where uh, JP and I talked to you, they're all accessible up on Patreon. So as soon as you are a subscriber, you can dig back into that archive. So absolutely. Um, we had uh, interviews with Craig Goldstein, who was the minor league editor at Baseball Prospectus. We talked to Nick Valeris talking about the last draft class where he was able to come on and give us kind of eyewitness scouting reports and people throughout the league that he talked to. Um, we've had John Perrin come on and, and talk about life as a minor leaguer. And then we kind of like maybe caused him to get traded. Uh, and so we've had a lot of different things that you can go back and listen to if you don't want to hear Ryan and I talk a little bit more. And hopefully we'll have a few more guests come in this uh uh, this winter actually well and also before we wrap this up i'd like to say thank you again to paul for joining us and stepping in for steve this week so he could uh go and be with his wife on her birthday weekend <laughs> and thank you guys for having me um it is always a pleasure and um since it is still football season um you can again re- read me at the shepherd express and at sp nation's acme packing company where i will be uh, covering the Packers' search for a new coach, and once they're eliminated, what they need to fill on the team. So, my God, they're not eliminated yet. No, no, they're still mathematically alive. They got like a six percent chance by Football Outsiders and like a three point seven by five thirty eight. If they if they actually beat the Bears, which they won't, but if they do, that'll jump to like 10, 10 11, 12. So they're not quite dead. They can double their odds in one win. <clears throat> Fantastic. All I right. Say, I would say make sure that you read uh, Paul's stuff because. I don't really understand anything in terms of the NFL. And so when I need to and something happens, <laughs> I don't read Paul's stuff to make sure that I can uh, be informed when I have my friends ask me what's going on with the Packers. And then I usually just say what he said. Well, thank you, JP. All right. You can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash tailgate. Patrons at the ball and glove level will once again receive that monthly minor league extra podcast. As always, follow us on Twitter at MKE tailgate. You can also submit questions to Milwaukee's.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page, which we check occasionally. Um, don't forget to subscribe on to the podcast on Apple podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google play. And apparently we are now on Spotify. Actually, I shouldn't say apparently we are now on Spotify as well. So you can do that there. You can also leave reviews and help people find the podcast. 
Thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate. <laughs> <laughs>